The following audio is from Story City Church in Burbank, California. For more information on Story City, go to storycitychurch.com. To be a somber reflection as the doorway in, and it doesn't actually detract from the celebration to pause and remember what it cost. Actually, the doorway into the truest form of celebration is to remember the depths from which we were raised and to remember the price that was paid. And so that's what we're here to do tonight. Simple, remember the price that was paid. And as we prepare for this Sunday, the day we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus, we set aside tonight as a night to remember the cross. It was the undeniable power of the cross that changed the world. It was the biggest event in history that has ever happened. Nothing bigger will ever happen. Hope was open. A door was open. And I want the power of the cross. We hope the power of the cross is on full display in this place tonight. The power to redeem sinners. It was this power that caused the Apostle Paul to write the words in the book of 1 Corinthians as he preached and wrote to them that when he was among them, he decided to know nothing but Christ and Christ crucified so that their faith might not rest in his eloquent words or the wisdom of man, but in the power of the Spirit and the power of the cross. And that is what we are after tonight. Tonight, as Jesus said in John 12, 32, when he is lifted high, he will draw all men to himself. That was a reference to the cross. And that is what we are here to do tonight. We are here to lift Jesus up in his fullness, look at his sacrifice, love it, appreciate it, see his agony, to see his sacrifice, to see his beauty in a God who would lay down his life to save us. So tonight we draw our hearts near to Jesus. That's what we're here to do. Would you pray with me? Father, as we open your word, I want to ask that you would be here with us by your spirit. I want to ask that you would open our hearts and our minds to see and appreciate the gift of the cross afresh, new, like it was the first time to realize and feel the reality that this is a room full of redeemed sinners with nothing to fear because you paid it all for us. Would only truth be heard this evening and would only truth be spoken this evening? By your spirit, I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. If you have your Bible, you can open up to John 19. John 19, verses 28 through 30, says this. Later, knowing that everything had now been finished and so that scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. A jar of wine vinegar was there, so they soaked a sponge in it, put the sponge on a stalk of the hyssop plant, and lifted it to Jesus' lips. When he had received the drink, Jesus said, It is finished. With that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. It's the word of the Lord. Amen. So did you know that at this very moment, right now, every single person in this room has 14.7 pounds of pressure weighing down on them. 14.7 pounds of pressure. You were born under that pressure. You walked into this room under that pressure, that weight. You can't feel it. If I was to put 14.7 pounds in your hands right now, you would feel it and say, that's, 
That's a fair amount of weight. You could actually put on some muscle lifting this amount of weight. And yet, you've walked under that weight your entire life. That weight is the weight of our atmosphere. It's the weight of the air on your shoulders. If you don't believe me, you can look it up, ask Jeeves, whatever you need to do. But it's a true fact. And tonight, in the same way that we all walk into this room under the physical weight of an atmosphere, I believe that many of us, myself included, unknowingly, unfelt, not feeling it, walk into this room with the weight, with a different kind of weight on our shoulders. It's the weight of striving. It's the weight of ceaseless striving. We strive in every area of our life. We strive in our finances. We strive in our relationships. We strive in our marriage. We strive in parenting. We strive in our careers. Constant effort, nonstop, much more than 14.7 pounds. And this kind of striving can leave us saying these kind of things to ourselves. Will it ever end? <laughs> the struggle is real, right? We say that lightly. The struggle is real, man. Life is hard. It's the air we breathe, the air of effort and striving. And yes, humanly speaking, this effort can be a good thing. It can pay dividends in this life, the hustle, the gain, the work, right? But at the end of the day, at some point, we all end up saying, is it really paying off? Am I really getting anywhere? Will it ever be finished? And the deck is especially stacked against us in the city we live in, L.A., Many of us right now sit in this room, not all of us, but many of us right now sit in this room having moved here with a dream to pursue, hoping to measure up, somewhere to get, somewhere to get to, the ceaseless striving. Most people move to this city striving. And then you get here and you realize suddenly that you're stuck paying rent you can barely afford for a place that's too small. And your struggle goes from, it changes from the struggle to chase your dream just to the struggle to survive, just from the struggle to make it. The effort keeps pouring out. And as if that weren't enough to keep us under the weight of the struggle, we live in a city that reminds us that the good life does exist here, right? Like this is the place where it is. There, are, there is someone at the beach right now. And they haven't left for a few days because their house is on it. And they're doing just fine. And this city reminds us through a barrage of Instagram posts, through a barrage of commercials and billboards that if you strive enough, if you work hard enough, you can get there too. And that if you're not there, maybe you're just not enough. The weight weighs down. The weight compiles on our shoulders. New York City is known as the city that never sleeps. After two and a half years in L.A., I'm relatively new here, but after two and a half years in L.A., I believe that we could correctly call this the city that never rests. This is the city that never rests. Even when we're resting, we're working our game, we're working our hustle. We got to get ahead. We got to pay the bills. There's somewhere to get to, another step to climb. We've all seen people we love dearly. In the life of short life of our church, I have seen people I love dearly under the weight of this city in one way or another have to leave town in search of a cheaper rent payment, in search of the gift of space, like a place where they could run without running into something. And I know too that for the people in this room that are doing well, through conversation with you, I know that the struggle is real. You know 
that if you don't keep your game up in this city, there is someone waiting in line to get what you have, right? And you can't sit still in the city of LA, the city that never rests. 14.7 pounds, it weighs down on us. And as people living under this constant weight, constant, never ceasing weight of striving, it's my belief and my experience that it's very, very difficult not to begin to overlay that experience onto our relationship with God. We begin to think that God operates in the same way, constantly demanding, constantly needing more, constantly asking, are you gonna measure up? We ask ourselves things like, is God mad at me that I'm failing? How can I know that God loves me, delights in me? How can I know that? Is there a way? Well, tonight on Good Friday, Jesus Christ answers all three, all these questions with three simple words. It is finished. It is finished. He said it on the cross for us. Tonight we see that in living, Christ set us free from our need to measure up by measuring up for us with his perfect life that he gave for us. Tonight we see that in dying, Christ took on himself the full weight of our failure and put it as far as the east is from the west so that we stand before God righteously robed in his righteousness. And tonight we see that when he said it is finished, he proved once and for all that we would never again have to bear the weight of measuring up to our Father, God. See, when we lay this understanding onto God, everything goes wrong in our walk with him. Everything. And so my hope tonight is that through looking at what Christ has done, we can unwind this rope, this weight of measuring up and walk out free, resting in the finished work of Jesus Christ because it is finished. So I want us to see three things tonight that I think will help us to get to this place. Number one, I want us to see that the cross was God's perfect plan to save sinners. I want us to look after that and see that the cross proves that God loves to save sinners like you and me. And then thirdly, I want us to see and trust that Jesus meant it when he said it was finished. So first, let's look and see that the cross was God's perfect plan to save sinners. Journey with me, if you will, in your mind's eye. Try to imagine back to the very beginning before God had spoken a word. He hadn't created you and me. He hadn't created Adam. He hadn't created the world. And yet he existed in three persons, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit in constant, simultaneous joy with one another, perfectly content and overflowing. It was this joy that would ultimately lead him to create the world and a desire to share his goodness but before he did that, the Father and the Son, in perfect unity, entered into a, an agreement together. The Father, in this moment, promises to redeem a fallen people he had yet to create. And the Son, Jesus, agrees to earn their redemption by becoming a man and dying in their place. All of this before the process had even started. If it sounds mysterious and raises questions for us tonight, that's good. It means we're thinking. 
this above all else maybe should make us know that Isaiah 55, 8 is true when it says that God's ways are higher than our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. We cannot fit the divine into our, infinite, into our finite minds. He is infinite. If we could understand everything about him, we would be bigger than him. We can't. But it is a biblical truth that God had a plan to save sinners and that plan was the cross and it was in place before he created anything. But I want us to see tonight that I'm not making this up, that it's in scripture, rooted in scripture. So I'm gonna give us a few verses quickly. Revelation 13, eight calls Jesus the lamb that was slain before the foundation of the world. The lamb that was slain before the foundation of the world. Meaning in some way before Adam ever breathed his first breath Before Eve picked the fruit from the tree and welcomed sin into the perfect world, bringing in the fall, the second Adam, Jesus, had already been slain on a cosmic battlefield to pay the price for our sins. The covenant of redemption was already in place. This should amaze us at the love of God. This should wow us that he would think of us that far in advance. It's an awesome mystery. If we need more proof, in Acts chapter 2, verses 22 through 23, Peter addresses the crowd at Pentecost and says this, fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death. Did we catch that? It was the deliberate plan, not only of Jesus, but of God the Father, that Jesus should lay down his life willingly for us. And it was the plan from the beginning. Jesus himself alluded to the reality both of his willingness to go to the cross and the Father's plan of the cross in John 10, 17, and 18. He said this, the reason my Father loves me is that I lay down my life, only to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. This command I received from my Father Jesus willingly lays his life down at the command of the Father. Christ did not die as a victim. He died as a victor. Christ did not die as a martyr. He died as a master. As Craig shared earlier, Christ was in control of the whole purpose, and he was busy executing a plan that had been established from the beginning of time, and nothing could stop him. One more. In Matthew 16, verses 21 through 23, Jesus begins to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem, suffer many things, and die at the hands of the religious leaders on a cross. And Peter hears Jesus saying this. And Peter is Jesus' most type A follower. Always got something to do, always got something to say. And Peter intervenes, and he pulls Jesus aside, and he's going to give Jesus a talking to, never a good idea. And he says, listen here, Jesus. I know you're absolutely sovereign and all, and you're God, but look, I'm Peter. I'm the rock you're going to build your church on. Kind of a big deal. Um, You're not going to do that, Jesus. You're not going to die. Never, by no means will this happen to you, Jesus. And Jesus takes Peter, and he looks him in the eye, and this this is the moment when you know you're having a bad day right here. Jesus looks in Peter and says, get behind me, Satan. That'll straighten your back up right there. 
get behind me, Satan. Why would Jesus react so strongly to Peter saying you're not going to the cross? Why would a, why would a meek man like Jesus say, get behind me, Satan? It was the plan. And all the powers of evil wanted to stop this plan from working itself out. And Peter, with good intentions, had stepped into a territory not his own. And it was the concern of God that was leading Jesus. The plan was unfolding. Let this reality sink in tonight. The Father and Son, their plan for salvation was yours before the creation of the world. We were on his mind and in his heart from the beginning of time. And Good Friday, this moment right now, was in his, time, in his mind knowing that he would pay the price for us on the cross, suffering the just for the unjust. A beautiful plan to glorify God. Secondly, not only was the cross God's perfect plan to save sinners, but we need to see tonight that the cross proves that God loves to save sinners. God loves it. This is his favorite thing. Craig preached on that a few weeks ago, actually. The cross is the great irrefutable proof that God loves sinners and loves saving sinners. It's really important that we understand this tonight. The entirety of the gospel of Jesus Christ is an expression not only of Jesus Christ's love for us, but of the love of the triune Godhead in its whole, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit working in perfect unity to save us from ourselves, in unity of purpose, different roles, executing different functions of the plan, but in perfect unity, all pursuing our heart out of love. The most famous Bible verse in the world, John 3.16, says it very simply. For God so loved the world that he gave his Son, that whosoever would believe in him, shall not perish, but have eternal life. God gave his son, and the son willingly goes because God and Jesus simultaneously in love overflowed to save a fallen creation. Romans 5.8 says the same thing in a different way. God demonstrates his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Christ did not die to earn us the Father's love, Christ died to demonstrate the love that we had had before the beginning of time. Here's why I labor this point tonight. It's so easy for us who breathe the air of striving and measuring up to start to superimpose a human understanding of love onto God whose love is divine. We so easily start to think of Jesus as the loving side of God and the father as the grumpy old man side of God, always needing to be constantly appeased. And we don't really know what to do with the Holy Spirit. So we, we'll just say he's the hippie 20-something out doing his own thing, right? <laughs> but in doing this, what we do, if they're indifferent, is, is we unwittingly divide the perfect unity of the Godhead. It's so easy for us to miss the point that it was the father who gave the son to demonstrate his love. The son who laid down his life in glad submission to the father and the spirit who empowered and protected the son until it was finished. Rather, we begin to see it as though God the father had a grudge. But the son said, wait, don't. I'll do it for them. And the spirit says, all right, where are we going? 
The natural byproduct of this misunderstanding of the unity of God in saving us is that we inevitably drift into trying once more to measure up for a God who must be appeased rather than letting the love that we had before the foundation of the world melt our hearts into obedience. We live out of guilt rather than amazement and amazement is the only fertile soil of Christian living. Guilt cannot produce obedience. Guilt cannot melt a heart. The Father is not angry. The Father loves, and he gave his Son in love. Now listen, the cross does tell us this. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit take sin very seriously. Very seriously. If it wasn't that way, why would Jesus have to suffer in agony on a cross to atone for sins that weren't his? This, the fact that God loves does not take away from his justice towards sin, but at the same time, the cross says that God loves us deeply. This is a hard concept. The great St. Augustine put it this way. It's on the screen. God's love is incomprehensible and unchangeable, for it was not after we were reconciled to him by the blood of his son that he started to love us. Rather, he loved us before the world was created. The fact that we were reconciled through Christ's death must not be understood as if the son reconciled us to the father so that he might begin to love those whom he had hated before. Rather, we have been reconciled to him who loved us already, with whom we were enemies on account of our sin. The reality is that our sin creates a divide. The reality is that our sin gets in the way. The reality is that God must deal justice upon sin. But the love of God is that he chooses to deal that justice not, not on the perpetrators of the injustice, but upon his just son so that the unjust can go free and he can be both just and the one who justifies the ungodly. Here's a really freeing reality tonight. Every single person in this room, God justified you. He forgave you. He died for you with his eyes wide open. He saw you at your worst he sees and saw the moment that you are most ashamed of, that you can't even hardly bear to talk about, the darkest fear in your heart. He saw it. And in that moment on the cross, as he dies in your place, he still screams, I love you and I want you. The cross and the gospel of Jesus Christ say that God loves you so much, even at your worst, that he would rather die in your place than spend eternity without you. He would rather die in your place than not have you in his arms for all eternity. And there was nothing that was going to get in the way of his plan. He sees us to the dirt, but he loves us to the stars. This humbles us and yet makes us bold. This breaks our heart and yet gives us hope. And it takes us out of the center and puts Jesus, the glorious one, on full display as the justifier of the unjust. This is good news tonight. It doesn't get any better than this. This is too good for words. I mean, this should blow us away how deeply we are loved. The cross was God's perfect plan to save sinners. The cross proves 
and prove that God loves to save sinners. And lastly, we need to see and trust Jesus when he said it was finished. So 2,000 years ago, a little over 2,000 years ago, God becomes man. He enters the scene in Bethlehem as it was prophesied. Not, no big fanfare, nothing, but God comes to earth. Born of a virgin. Grows up in relative obscurity. Learns the trade of carpentry from his dad. Becomes a carpenter himself. Has a family, a mom, siblings. And then after 30 years, he begins his public ministry that only lasted three years and would change the very course of history. He begins his public ministry with his baptism. He's baptized in the Jordan River. A dove descends in the form of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit descends in the form of a dove. The voice of God is heard. This is my son with whom I'm well pleased. And he begins his public ministry as John the Baptist recognizes him as the Messiah. He heals the sick. He loves the unloved. He brings sight to the blind. He's perfect, sinless, never says, does, or thinks anything that God himself would not think because Jesus Christ himself was fully God and fully man, another mystery that can make our brains hurt. He's tempted in every way that we are tempted. He feels every weight of temptation that you have ever experienced in your life and then some because he's the only one that ever fully stood up to temptation and beat it, so he's the only person that knows the full weight of temptation. He feels sorrow. He feels tired. He is constantly being met with needs to be met even as he tries to break away into solitude. And yet he loves people as they come to him. And he takes an issue not with the sinners of his time, but with the religious leaders. They don't like him too much. They didn't take to Jesus. In fact, they devise a plan because they're so threatened by him and the kingdom that he's proclaiming with authority that they devise a plan to kill him and put him to death. Jesus is betrayed for 30 pieces of by one of his closest, looking at him at the final supper and saying, what you do, do quickly, knowing full well that the plan was unfolding. Jesus is led before the council. He's accused of blasphemy for claiming to be equal with God. He's led before Pilate, and Pilate, a coward, though he knows in his heart of hearts that Jesus has done no wrong, succumbs to the will of the crowd that is chanting, crucify him, demanding that a thief go free in his place, Barabbas. Jesus is tied to a stump and a whip called the cat of nine tails is pulled out and beaten into his back, ripping flesh from bone. And he's silent all the while. From there he's robed in a mockery of a purple robe. He has a crown of thorns pressed into his brow, blood running down his innocent face. The soldiers mock and scream and spit and bow before him 
in mockery, and he sits silent. He's led from there up a hill, carrying his own cross through the streets that he had worked miracles in, through the streets where he had healed people, through the streets only days ago that people had laid palm branches in as he rode in on a donkey, until he gets to the top of the hill called Golgotha, where he is put on a cross, nails driven through his hands, a nail driven through his feet. The soldiers dividing his garments, he hangs naked in shame upon a cross, though innocent and guilty of nothing but love. Until he breathes his last, but before that, we hear him say these three words. It is finished. It's finished. And he hangs his head and he gives up his spirit. What was finished? What was finished in that moment? The plan, the mission. Jesus wasn't living haphazardly on earth. Everything he did had an intention. Everything, every moment that he spent, he spent, submitted perfectly to the Father's will. He had lived the perfect life that everyone before him and after him would fail to live. He had died the death that those imperfect people deserved. That was your death. That was my death. Those were your lashes. Those were my lashes that he bore on the tree. And he had absorbed it all. And he says, it is finished. Colossians chapter 2, verse 13 through 15, say this. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross, and having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by his cross. What was finished? This verse gives us a few things. He made us alive with Christ. It is finished. By faith in him, we are justified, made alive in Christ. He forgave us all our sins, past, present, and future. It is finished, forgiven. He canceled the guilty verdict, the legal indebtedness which stood against us for betraying the glory of God. He swallowed it up. It is finished. He disarmed the powers and authorities, Satan and his dominions. He disarmed them and made a spectacle of them by triumphing over them with the most unlikely of means, a brutal cross where he would die. How did he do it? He triumphed over them. He took away our sin by nailing it to the cross. It's as if the nail that went through Jesus' hand had a list underneath it of everything we've ever done wrong, every sin we would commit, past, present, and future, all of humanity. And when that nail passed through Jesus' hand and passed through Jesus himself, that list was transferred onto Jesus himself so that Christ's perfect righteousness could be transferred onto us, a fallen creation, so that now when we come to Jesus by faith, when we come to the Father by faith, a way has been opened for God to look at us and not just say, 
okay, I guess I'm all right with you. I forgive you. Jesus died for you. But no, I love you. I see my son. You are not just forgiven. You are justified. You are not just told you can go. You are told you are welcome. You can come, and I want you to come into my presence. It is finished. For us Angelinos in this room tonight, on Good Friday, headed into Easter, which is going to be an absolute party, the weight of measuring up to God we need to see it for the joke that it is. We could never measure up. That's why Jesus had to come. There's nothing we could ever do. You could spend your life trying to climb the perpetual ladder and there will always be another rung. But look to Jesus who said, it is finished on the cross. We can see the one who measured up on our behalf to set us free and rest. Rest in what he accomplished. Did you come into this room tonight with that 14.7 pounds on your shoulders? Heavy, trying to earn something from God. See tonight that he gives it to you freely at the life, at the cost of the life of his son. And be amazed. Be amazed. Be in awe. Awe will lead you into a new life full of joy and obedience. Let me pray. Father, thank you for your plan of salvation. Thank you for your son who executed your will perfectly to open a way, to close the gap by the blood of the cross. Thank you for the perfect and precious and pure blood of Jesus that was spilled in our place. Thank you for the atonement that is ours in him. Thank you for the love that is ours in him. Tonight, we come into this room as people who strive for things. God, help us not to overlay that effort onto you. Help us seeing your son to lay down our heavy burdens and know that his yoke is easy and his burden is light and find rest in his gift. But that rest doesn't put an end to effort, just earning doesn't mean that we don't live for him. No, it means that we do live for him. It propels us to love him, seeing what he's done. Oh, Jesus, would you help us to see that tonight? Would your spirit open our eyes to see and savor the sacrifice that you made, the just suffering for the unjust? It's in Jesus' name.